0: Welcome to Tilting at Windmills
1: with your host, Mike Donahue.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tilting at Windmills with me, Mike Donahue. And I think today is going to be an incredibly interesting episode and discussion. We're pretty lucky to have Nikola Danilov here with us, sort of virtually, I guess not here physically. And Nikola is a leading expert on the concept of singularity. Uh, welcome, Nicola. Nice to talk to you, Mike. And it's it's okay for me to call you Nick, yes? Absolutely. All right. So let's, let's start out just because I, I think the term singularity means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, including just people who have never heard the term or hearing it for the first time right now. Can you talk a little bit to the, what what you feel the definition of singularity is, and then perhaps what some of the variations of that definition are.
1: Right. So perhaps those who are interested to go real deep into the definition of the technological singularity could just uh, search. I think I wrote an article five or ten years ago called like 13, 14 or 15 definitions of the technological singularity. And there's many subtleties in many schools of thought when the definition comes to play. However, for brevity, perhaps we ought to stress two of the more important ones, I think. And that is, simply put, singularity is the moment when artificial intelligence first equals and then surpasses quickly thereafter human intelligence. In other words, that's the moment when a species that would emerge after us would become the smartest species, and we would stop being the smartest species on our planet. And the term is borrowed from physics, with the idea or the metaphor being a black hole, meaning that the perception with a black hole has been that there's nothing that emerges out of a black hole, it's so black that it's it's imperceptible, it's invisible because there's no light escaping. Now, after that definition came to be, we know that this may or may not be actually accurate, but at least the naming of a black hole stems from that understanding that there's no light or anything else escaping out of a black hole, which is why we call it a black hole. And we borrow that metaphor in the technological evolutionary sense to say that after the moment that artificial intelligence comes to be, our ability to model the future would fall apart. In other words, up to now, we have been able to reasonably project based on the past data, we can kind of project with a comfortable uh, rate of error into the future. That's because we have been so far the most powerful species on our planet because we have been so far the most intelligent species on our planet and the presumption is that once that's no longer the case, once that no longer holds true, once AI is smarter than us then all bets are off and then our ability to model the future would simply fall apart because you see it wouldn't be up to us anymore, in other words it would be out of our hands. And so that's the first and perhaps the most, arguably, the most popular definition of the technological singularity. Another definition of the technological singularity is the so-called intelligence explosion. And uh, another definition of the technological singularity connected to that, and even the first one, is that, let's say, the change in the next five minutes would supersede the previous changes in the fa- in the previous two billion years. So, in other words, we are moving at such an accelerated pace of change, where change is happening faster and faster and faster than ever before, and the pace is accelerating itself exponentially, that there comes a point when we're, where we have a rupture, in the sense of our ability to follow up and keep up to date with that accelerating change simply falls apart. And in that context, again, machines are presumably going to be better equipped to keep up with accelerating change than us because, you see, we're only human and we have biological limitations and our computational capacity is very limited and it hasn't really changed that much for the last couple hundred thousand years. Whereas machine intelligence would presumably evolve alongside a kind of a Moore's law uh, graph, if you will, where they would not suffer from our biological limitations. Now, whether that's actually the case or not, you know, those are all presumptions, but that's one of the kind of commonly shared presumptions about them, is that they would not suffer from our limitations, they would be able to accelerate their intelligence, both hardware and software, unlike to us who cannot do neither hardware nor software acceleration, really. And therefore, they would be a lot more capable of keeping up than we can. And so, however, there's a third or a fourth, I should say, flavor of the technological singularity. And sometimes it's again uh, attributed to Werner Ver- Vinge, who also coined the term, the technological singularity, in its popular Conception, as we know it, in the 1980s. Uh, he's a professor of mathematics and a fantastic science fiction author. And that fourth sense is kind of a combination between intelligence explosion and sort of superhumanness, if you will, or superhumanity. It's a way of kind of humanity or humans being able to merge with our technology. So let's say we, for whatever reason, we don't have machines reaching the point of artificial intelligence, but yet maybe we can have humans merge with technology and therefore we could be the seed for that emerging intelligence. So uh, that could ha- happen with, let's say, some kind of cognitive implants. It could happen with hardware upgrades, therefore, or it could happen with genetic manipulation. Uh, it could happen with a bit of both or it could happen simply through better interfaces, let's say brain-machine interfaces like the ones uh, popularized by Elon Musk of recently, stuff like Neuralink. Uh, But whatever the path may be, the result may be a humanity merging with our technology, reaching a point of intelligence explosion where, first of all, the intelligence explosion is that everything around us becomes smart, so that's an intelligence explosion that everything is waking up if you will those familiar with ray kurzweil's different stages of the singularity will be familiar because with that because that's his last point of the singularity last stage where there's no more dumb dust there's no more dumb universe but we have smart universe with smart dust where everything is intelligent anymore so that's the intelligent explosion And combine that with the fact that we are able, as humanity, as humans, be it individually, be it collectively, we're able to hook up onto that. So we are kind of connected with all that smart universe around us, and we are in a smart way communicating and receiving all that data and able to process it one way or another, and uh, therefore we kind of reach a kind of a superhumanity or transhumanity or a post-humanity, if you will. But of course, at that point, we certainly would not be merely human anymore. So that's just like four ways perhaps, that that would give you enough of the flavors of the technological singularity. So a couple of questions then. And, and
0: I think one of the ones that plays out in, in science fiction a lot is is that concept of, you know the actually moving uh, someone's consciousness into a computer or something similar. So there's mind uploading, mind uploading. Yes, um, as a way to you know cheat death, any any sort of other sort of benefits. But theoretically, that's that falls into that sort of that fourth category of completely transhuman.
1: Sure, that's one way of merging with our machines by uploading human consciousness into a machine hardware with the presumption that we would not be suffering from the limitations of our biology anymore and the machines would not be suffering from the limitations of their non-existent consciousness anymore so in other words supposedly it's like the best of both worlds we get their hardware which is immortal, all-powerful and sort of improving along Moore's law exponential graph and they get our intelligence and our consciousness
0: yeah, that's that's a heavy thought. But let's we can we can get into I think I think some of those concepts later because I think my initial response to that is that by the time the computers are smart enough for us to upload our minds to them, we may not be in a position of authority to do that.
1: Well, it all depends how things would pan out. Uh, this is all speculation, we don't know you know, which one's going to come first, the chicken or the egg, but the the point is, or or any at all for that matter, because both of them may hit one kind of a barrier or another, uh, which could make it impossible, even though, to be honest, I so far have not seen any evidence that would suggest to me that both of those or either of those alternatives are absolutely impossible in theory. Uh, In practice, We don't know if or when we're going to get there, but in theory, at least, I have have not seen any evidence so far that can convince me that those are both absolutely impossible to happen. But there are possibility or plausible scenarios where we could merge with the machines before they wake up on their own. And one of those possibilities may be connected to consciousness. Because you see, machine intelligence supposedly, if you could even call it intelligence because the machine, the so-called machine intelligence is very different from human intelligence and animal intelligence and therefore the word intelligence may not be even applicable to properly describe what machines are capable to do today, incredibly impressive as it is, simply because intelligence the way we describe it is like very anthropomorphic concept it stems from our own intelligence, then we apply that to the animal world and and the rest of the animal kingdom, but we do still have a lot of things in common with all the animals, whereas the machines would be an entirely new kingdom of their own. And so the concept of intelligence as we understand it may or may not be applicable properly to their kingdom. Anyway, so putting that kind of conversation aside, Right now, however you measure intelligence, there have been pretty impressive progress with respect to so-called machine intelligence, where we have zero progress, however, not even a speck of progress is towards machine consciousness. And so there might be a point where to get to the next level of intelligence, because here's the thing, so far what we can observe from our own experience and and factual observation of the real world is that, you know, we are supposedly the smartest species on our planet and we possess high degrees of consciousness or self-consciousness supposedly. And we don't have any evidence that our degree of intelligence can even exist without a parallel sort of accompanying uh, degree of consciousness. And we can even see that animals with lower, supposedly lower intelligence than us, also exhibit a number of signs or symptoms that they accompany their intelligence with a similar level of of animal consciousness, if you will. So we know that animals are both conscious to a degree and intelligent to a degree. And therefore, but the machines that we have built so far, they're only very intelligent to a very impressive degree, as I said, but they're completely lacking any consciousness of any degree whatsoever to the best of our knowledge. And so simply to get to the next level of intelligence, it may or may not, it's an open question, you know, but if it is the case that to get to the next level of intelligence, let's say AGI, Artificial General Intelligence or Artificial Super it may be a requirement to have consciousness. And if that's indeed true, And if we haven't been able to create set consciousness by design or programming or some kind of an evolutionary algorithm or machine learning or anything like that, and I'm totally skeptical that you can use machine learning to produce consciousness whatsoever. I've seen zero evidence that that's possible. Anyway, so if all those ifs actually line up in a specific way, All I'm trying to paint here is a scenario where actually our consciousness might take the machines to the next level. So it's not implausible to say that in these conditions, actually the merger of man and machine could be the only, or even if not the only, the main or first alternative to producing intelligence explosion, to producing uh, transhumanist or post-humanist super empowered entities to produce some kind of a super intelligence, if you will. Would it be fair to use
0: sentience as an equal word with consciousness in this case?
1: Well, it's all about the definitions, uh, and and we need to go into the etymology of, of both of those terms. I think so... Sentience may be more close to consciousness, perhaps, and sapience may be more close to intelligence, the way I understand the terms, at least. So we say, we, we say that something is sapient, but it may not be sentient. Or something is sentient, but it may be less sapient. Uh, and, and so I think machines are kind of becoming sapient, as we can see, but so far, there's no sign of them being any sentient. So I guess
0: um, the pushback on that might be that theoretically, you know, in terms of the human computer, the human brain, that, that it really is just a matter of inputs, right? Visual inputs, the five senses, audio inputs, and then and the capability of learning and retaining knowledge and then applying knowledge, right? Trial and error concepts. And I, I guess I'm wondering, you, you feel pretty confident that right now it's its hard to imagine that an advanced enough machine with the proper input types could achieve that sort of consciousness? Because isn't it, I, like I guess at the bottom level, I mean, aside from the discussion of the soul, which I think is a whole different subject, like at the end of the day, isn't it all just inputs? Isn't it all just data?
1: No, absolutely not. Why do we not have a, it is a matter of inputs just as it is a matter of complexity, which is to say not at all. Uh, So many people have said, for example, look, the human brain has certain kind of complexity and certain kind of computational capacity. So let's say Ray Kurzweil's 10 to the 16th is correct, even though there is a bunch of debates whether it's really 10 to the 18th or maybe even 10 to the 26th. Whatever it may be. And some people would say, well, certain systems, when you have a certain kind of a complexity layering, then you have the spontaneous emergence of uh, consciousness. You know, that's a cop-out. Why is it that we see so many complex systems in the universe which don't exhibit any consciousness or or sometimes even not even any intelligence. Think about a hurricane. A hurricane could be incredibly complicated event, there's so many things happening, that's why uh, meteorological computers must be supercomputers, because there's so many data points and so many inputs, as you said, happening all at once, and yet it doesn't somehow substitute itself suddenly into an intelligent or self-conscious system, it just is. And there's many natural phenomena that go along those lines, they're very complex, they're very complicated, and yet they don't give you any intelligence emergence or any consciousness emergence. Look at our computers today, we already have supercomputers who are better than 10 to the 16th in terms of computational capacity, so we have supercomputers that are better than our human brain yet, already and yet we don't have them exhibiting human behavior or even paralleling and and even having the capacity of three or four or five-year-old kids. Why? Because it takes more. The inputs may be important, but they're not sufficient. So it surely takes more. It's not about only the inputs, it's about how you put it all together. It's about the recipe, not just the ingredients. And if you don't know the recipe, you can have all the exact ingredients, but you can totally mess it up and then it will be useless.
0: Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it was really the the, it's not obviously predicated on just the number of data points. Right. As you said, there's a things that have a ton of data points, but it's it's the ability and maybe this is what you mean by recipe. Is, is it's the ability to coalesce those data points into some form of decision-making. There has to be, whether maybe it's the software, if you want to call it that, or the rule set that gets programmed, or I have a hard time disassociating from the thought that the human brain is anything other than a biological computer.
1: Well, so here's the thing. So... I agree and I disagree with you. So, I'm an atheist and I don't really believe in the soul. And so, in some sense, I agree with you that I can agree with half of your statement to say that the human brain is biological. I agree with that.
0: <laughs> that's the easy part.
1: <laughs> but, but to say that the human brain is a computer, that's pushing it. That I at best on that statement i can say we don't know because a computer is a very kind of a first of all it's it's derived by our brains uh, our brains de- designed it the most popular computers are sort of like turing von neumann architecture today they're binary machines they're all created with zero and ones our brains are nothing like that and so in some ways to call our, comp- our brains a computer is like, if not an insult, it's, it's simply inappropriate. It's like comparing apples to oranges. You, you can't really do that. So we're trying to do that, but, but I'm trying to warn us that that presumption comes at a very heavy cost. And most people presume, oh look, the human brain is nothing but, but a computer. Well, maybe But if you are to accept that for basic fact or truth, you have to understand that it comes at a very heavy cost, at a very heavy price. And from then on, if you take that for granted, you would be forced to omit or miss so many things that eventually may, in the long run, hurt you rather than help you. Even though in the short run they may produce progress, in the long run they may hurt you real bad in terms of both understanding, but also ability to replicate or recreate the human brain or, or put it together, whether as a mind plot or whether as a simulation. Uh, so I want to say it's possible to go either way, but that's an open question at best. And I am myself lying a little more on the skeptical end of things here to say that it's unclear whether a binary stratum Now, if you're an engineer and a computer scientist, most people would say, what are you talking about? Look at what kind of complex computational systems we're able to simulate uh, and recreate with our binary codes. Yes, but they work within specific realms, within specific simulated worlds, and they're very good in those, but they're not good in open-ended systems. And our brain is good in an open-ended system, and it learns much faster than your algorithms. We don't need 10 billion examples of cats and dogs. We we are born and we see three cats and three dogs, and we know for the rest of our lives what's a cat and what's a dog.
0: Do we, though, at, at six months when you first see a cat, right, and then after you see another cat? I mean, babies don't even have the concept of something going into a box, right? Uh, they think the object has disappeared the moment it goes out of sight. I guess my only pushback to that would be, you know, you can have a binary foundation that presents as a finished product or a what appears to be a non-binary object so for instance the color red right when you're playing a video game or you're looking at your tv that red what you're perceiving as red was originally just zeros and ones complete zeros and ones but your your understanding of that zeros and ones is that i'm seeing something that's red or i'm seeing a picture of an apple right? Even though the underlying data is truly zeros and ones.
1: Yeah. But you see, that's the difference between experience and theory, direct experience and theory. It's like, okay, so uh, what it's like to be a bat, you know, you can imagine what it's like to be a bat and, and maybe you can even hang upside down for a while and, and see how you can approximate that experience, but the reality is and you can read and study bats all your life, the reality is you'll never know what it's like to be a bat because you're not a bat, and the only way you can experience what it's like to be a bat is to be a bat, and the same with the color red like you can be a blind person and you can know everything about the color red, if you've never actually seen the color red you've never experienced the color red You can be uh, a professor of sexology uh, and if you've never had an orgasm, you can have read all the books on orgasms or being in love. And if you've never been in love and if you've never had an orgasm, you know, (laughs) how much of a knowledge that is? You know, so there's the real world. So if you take a, a Zen master like Alan Watts, he would tell you that all the computer scientists are living in the world of illusions and not in the real world Why? Because you see zeros and ones are not the real world they're representations of the real world they're not the real world just like the alphabet and the words that we use to communicate now to each other are not the real world and when I say this is a microphone, this is a desk, this is a screen it's a representation of those items, but it's not their items. And that's a very important distinction that we must never forget. And so uh, when I tell you the sound is this and you can put it in you know, binary code or in Morse code and you can study it all you, know, you want, this is not the real sound. This is a representation of the sound and therefore it's the world of illusion or what Plato would say, the world of shadows. But the real sound is this. And, and yes, you can put that in binary code, but that would not be the real sound. That would be a representation of the real sound. That would be a mirror image. That would be the shadow on the platonic cave wall.
0: Yeah, and for those of you who haven't read Plato's The Cave, I highly recommend it. It's a great book.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you can simply Google on YouTube uh, Plato's Cave. Metaphor and and it's like I don't know three or four or five minute uh, YouTube video you can watch I don't, and I don't know why I'm pushing back on this so much. No, you can push it. That's what conversation is about. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I could
0: argue that the sound that is hitting your ears and the sound that you hear is also not "quote unquote" the sound, right? That that's hitting it hits your eardrum. There's a vibration in your eardrum physically. There's a physical response. Which again I could reconstrue as input, right? And then that then is sent to, you know, the neurons that inform the brain that, oh, I'm hearing this sound, right? And be- based and theoretically we don't we still don't know what the content of that neuron transmission is, right? Only that it's electric and it it's a neuron and it's sending some sort of signal.
1: It's not just electric, it's chemical and electric at the same time it's biochemical and it has electric properties it has chemical properties it has physical properties hell it might even have quantum properties we don't even know that but why why would why is that so fundamentally
0: different than a binary signal equating that tone pitch and volume set i feel like i'm missing something super obvious i'm i'm feeling
1: No, no, you're not missing anything, it makes perfect sense, so first of all, our brains, they don't, and and ears and, and everything, they don't, just like the computers, they don't capture the full representation of the sound, so that's a good point, we only capture a tiny slice of reality, so in other words, whether with computers or whether with our brains, we are only capturing a tiny little slice of reality that's all surrounding us. And that's kind of the human condition in a way. That's the paradox Bo- that the Buddhists talk about. That's why they say that we live in the world of illusions too. And that the world is illusory. Because there's a lot more beyond our senses. And because our senses are untrustworthy at their best. right? So, so all those points you raised are very good. And, and the brain basically creates a story in our head and takes a number of shortcuts and abbreviations to create a representation that makes sense in the context of our processing capacity, not so much in the in, in our evolutionary wiring, uh, rather than the actual true representation of the world. Now, it happens to be the case, though, that at least so far, our brains are vastly superior to our computers. So while the brains are... Not a proper full and complete representation of the outside world. The computers are neither, but we are at least so far superior to the computers. So
0: and the key point being so far. And so I want to take it back to the, you know, originally you 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 talked about that this this you know theoretically it, in terms of human history, we could always sort of predict the next set, right? And theoretically, one of the definitions of singularity was the concept of there's just such a growth in the ex- in, in, in the rate of knowledge that it becomes, you know, any sort of predictions about what the future is or what the future looks like goes by the wayside. And I might argue that, you know, 50 years before the Industrial Revolution, no one could have predicted, you know, trains rolling around just as, you know, it would have been nearly impossible for, you know, someone in the 1860s to predict what an iPhone is. And it feels like there are moments in human history, right, whether it's the Industrial Revolution or, you know, the Agricultural Revolution or what I consider the Internet Revolution, that there is another revolution coming. And it's just that the implications or the impact of that revolution are are far greater than what the prior sort of leaps in human existence were.
1: Possibly, yeah. That's that's why the technological singularity is taunted to be the biggest, grandest, most gargantuan change that we have ever experienced. But there are sort of condi- So first of all, going back to, to your examples, like Nikola Tesla was able to predict iPhones, and, and, and uh, wireless communication, and a bunch of other things. Jules Verne was able to predict many other things. Uh, even if you look at the ancient Greek myths and legends, they were able to predict in a, in a very broad way, robots, right? Because in many Greeks and, and, and legends, you have basically artificial beings created by the gods, uh, whether it was the giant of Tassos, whether there was there were many others, who were basically in the modern sense of the word robots. Uh, you know, you have the myth or the legend of Golem, uh, and, and you have like that in many many traditions. By the way, so whether those are predictions or not, it, it's it's a whole other discussion. But those are images, those are stories that have been present in our civilization for maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And so basically we're just having new iterations, new versions today which simply connect better with our context. So we update the the sort of interface between the image and our context so that it connects better and is more convincing but but the roots of the ideas has been around for a long time.
0: Well, I mean, to let's speak to that for a minute because we're not going to hop overnight from where we are today to transhumanism. There's going to be obviously stages, and one of the the first significant impacts on culture and society, I I think, um, will be that combination of whether you want to call it artificial intelligence or or machine learning combined with automation, and the disruptive impact that that. Is going to have on our on our society, especially you know, vis-a-vis the employment rate, right? I mean, there are some models or some you know strains of thought that within ten or fifteen years we could be looking at up to fifty percent unemployment globally because of AI and automation.
1: Those are all science fiction. You know, the, the the short answer is that we don't know because there's so many ways. So that that's the so-called argument for technological unemployment. And you know, I fluctuate on that, and, and the reason for that is that there's so much more that we don't know, and there's so much that depends on our actions, and our actions are at best inconsistent, and maybe at worst uh, self-destructive, but they could determine the outcome one way or another, they can push us towards one way of the of the spectrum of the possible of of the cone of the possible futures towards the other end of the spectrum of the cone of the possible futures. And and that could make all the difference whether for our survival, whether for survival of life in general, or whether for the outcome of whether there will be a technological unemployment or not. And and it's all kind of, take this context very related to the implementation, and what happens with the proceeds, or what happens with the benefits, what happens with the, the profits. Do we reinvest those? What happens with the so-called efficiency gains? Because you see, let's say from the 1940s, from World War II, let's say we had the Great Depression, 1920s, 1930s, and then we had the New Deal, and we had World War II, and then we had a period of maybe 40 years, maybe 35 years until the 70s, maybe mid-70s, oil embargo, where the gains of productivity 90% of the gains of productivity were reinvested in labor. In other words, 90% of the profits of the gains of productivity that the system produced in North America, in the United States, in Canada, in Western Europe, went towards the increased payments towards wages, and only 10% of that went towards capital and profits. Now, after the mid-1970s, somewhere around or after the oil embargo and certainly after Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher came in power, we had a reversal. We had 90% of the gains of efficiency or gains of productivity going towards capital and only 10% of them going towards labor. Which is why, if you look at real wages versus nominal wages, uh, uh, and if you look at the rate of inflation, wages have actually dropped since the 1980s until today. The minimum wage, at least in most countries, if if not in all countries, certainly in the United States, right? Uh, and 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 so, in other words, what I'm trying to say here is, if let me give you two potential derivative future scenarios with respect to technological unemployment. And the, the real question here to ask is not whether we're going to have robots, but who are they going to be owned by? And who, in, in other words, who are they really going to be working for? And, and they obviously would be working for the ones who own them. So if you have, first of all, a, a, a Green New Deal Instead of the New Deal that FDR had, let's say you have a Green New Deal, uh, sort of similar to the one that's being proposed uh, in Germany and, and in many countries actually, and you have basically in that case, you have several decades worth of work for every working man and woman on planet Earth in order to convert our civilization away from fossil fuels and into the sort of the new sustainable green civilization that we may want to be. And that means that technological unemployment will not be a factor for at least 30 years, maybe longer, maybe 40 or 50 years. Or you can say, screw this, let's just do the shortest cut, which is to say we just go for profits today, and we just replace workers today with machines today and we pocket the profits, right? That's another scenario. And in that case, obviously, you can have massive, massive technological unemployment, especially if you have sort of the economic imperative, which is backed up by a political imperative. Because a political imperative can put the brakes or hit the accelerator on each of those potential scenarios. So if, for example, we do like Bill Gates proposed, tax the robots and then use that taxed money for basic minimum income, for retraining, for funding the Green New Deal or anything like that, education, re-education, whatever, vaccination even, why not, R&D. In that case, you're not going to have a technological unemployment. You're just going to shift uh, the workforce from one sector to another sector. I mean I'm speaking here in the sort of the medium to longer term, let's say 20 to 50 years, right? And the, the only difference between those two very different scenarios, one of technological unemployment and one of, you know, abundance of jobs is the, the implementation. And the implementation is not derived out of our technology because the technology stays the same. In other words, the technology is non-deterministic. It's how we apply it. You know, I learned that lesson when I was born in in Bulgaria behind the Iron Curtain. uh, And I grew up there until I was like, you know, I was 14 years old when the Iron Curtain and the communist bloc collapsed. And we had mostly the same technology like, the people in the West, we had nuclear weapons, we had trains and tanks and airplanes and stuff. And we were very good in science. But we built, with that technology, dictatorship of the proletariat, <laughs> supposedly. And in the West, people supposedly built a Western-style democracy. Uh, and, and, you know, Hitler built in 1930s Germany and 1940s Germany with the same tools. He built fascism. And, and so did uh, Mussolini in Italy, right? Uh, and, and the only difference was not the technology, but was the ideology, was the philosophy that was pushing the technology and the application thereof. And so what I'm trying to say here is that technology is non-deterministic, there's an awful lot that depends on our decision, and we can skew the scales of history one way or another, either towards technological unemployment or towards General prosperity, but that would not be a technological outcome. It would be a philosophical and ideological outcome.
0: So I've thought about this quite a bit, and I and I have the same sort of, you know, I call it the fork in the road or or, or a a divergence. I think I'm I'm a little bit I don't know if you want to call it optimistic, um, but I feel pretty strongly, you know, when you talk when you talk about, you know, the the government. And I think we could have a cabillion conversations about the political ramifications, not to mention Reagan and Thatcher. Uh, but the thought that government can impede the inertia or the momentum that technological change has, I think that's under, at least in America, right, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, as you said in the '70s, we went through a massive culture change, right? Uh, where, you know, best in that movie, where Gordon Gecko says, "Greed is good," right? Uh, at the time, he was a villain. Uh, now that he was would the be, '80s, by the way. Right there. in the, you know, in the '80s, early '80s or, or mid '80s, you know, when when we went to go see that movie, Gordon Gecko was the bad guy. He was this greedy guy who was just all he cared about was money, money, money and and today that would he's the hero right he's he's the hero of that movie and we went we went through this real big cultural shift about the concept of greed the self-worth of the individual and maybe that's in response you know uh, in regards to the oil shortage and and the the concept of you have to grab whatever resources are available to you but i think it's not super in 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 my vision of or my assessment of the 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 way our government is run and the impact of corporations on what's legal and not legal is that it's hard to imagine a situation where the government is going to say, hey, you can't replace 50% of your workers with robots, right? Or you, you, you but know. They don't you
1: know, have to do it. They can just start taxing the robots more than the, the workers and that would have the same effect. But we, we can't even
0: get a decent corporate baseline tax rate here. Right. We have we have billion dollar companies with billion dollar profits that pay zero dollars in taxes.
1: So the fact that we're not doing something doesn't mean we can't do it. And, 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 you know, it's all about changing the story that is the operating system behind those decisions. So how did Reagan and Thatcher change the story or the shift the paradigm that was preceding them? They changed it with the story. They changed it with the story of laissez-faire capitalism. They they changed it with the story of rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, they changed it with the story of trickle-down economics. Those are all very powerful stories, whether they're true or not. Uh, how did Hitler change the paradigm preceding him with the story of fascism? How did uh, you know, Marx and and Lenin and and all the other revolutionaries, Castro, change all their preceding paradigms with a change of story. That's the first step always. You have to have a new narrative, a new humongous story. That's the first step towards change. And so, uh, and that's probably the the most important step. There is many other steps required afterwards, so just the story is insufficient, but that's probably the most important step, because if you have a powerful enough story you would basically break the floodgates that that take people towards a certain kind of action and a certain kind of outcome. Uh, Take for example the French Revolution. You have had a story of the divine right of kings for thousands of years. And nobody dared to question it unless, and if and only if, you were the king's brother. Therefore, you can claim the right to the same divine lineage as the king. And in that case, you can kill your brother, or you can kill your cousin, or your uncle, or in some cases, your father and become the king. Why? Because genetically or genealogically, you can claim the same divine right. Well with the French Revolution, people who thought that for thousands of years made sense almost kind of overnight in the span of a decade changed their minds so much that basically they killed the king and they guillotinized him and, and all his cronies that could take over the crown afterwards. Uh, and that they were star- the French- they were starving. Sure.
0: That, it, that, it wasn't about a story to them. It was like, we, we no, don't have food on the table and this guy's over here eating the story.
1: cake. story. Look, people have starved for thousands of years. That was not a new phenomenon, starvation. The, the new part is that you are blaming the king for your starvation. Because before that, when we had the plague and when we had other things, you can say, well, maybe we need a new king. Kill that king and install his brother on the throne. Or you could say it's the sinful population which has spurned God in its wayward behavior and is now therefore being punished by the wrath of God. But most cases the story explained whatever plague or or starvation or whatever you know adversity it may have been a deadly adversity I might say, the kings usually kept their thrones. Uh, And and so in this situation you have a direct case scenario where the people blamed the king and they disposed of him. So the the starvation surely accelerated things and surely made them worse uh, and increased recruitment among the revolutionaries But the story was already out that the king has no better divine right to rule them than they had the right to rule the king. And once that story was out, people were able and willing to take over and kill the king. And the same applies with transhumanism, by the way. That's the same exact idea in the whole humanist enlightenment, right? So that's what humanism is all about. Humanism is about killing God and installing humanity on God's throne. So, before the Enlightenment, before the Renaissance, before the Industrial Revolution, we had God who was the measure of everything. And so, if you were to get married, if you were to start a business venture, if you were to travel, if you were to uh, bapt- send your kids to school, you are supposed to go and ask God's support and God's advice, and you would talk to usually members of the clergy, or a shaman, or something like that, and then they would kind of roll the bones or, uh, you know, make you pray and maybe pay a little bribe, and they would tell you God's will. But after the Renaissance, after the Enlightenment, we killed God, and basically humanity became the measure, the only measure of everything. So we no longer needed permission by God to do anything, but all we needed, instead of looking outward, we had to look inward. So just follow yourself, follow your gut, follow your inner feeling, follow your bliss, however you want to define it. You're not to go and ask permission. You're not to ask God. You're not to ask the clergy whether you should marry her or not. You should ask your heart. And that would give you the only true answer, right? And that's basically the essence of humanism. And and the only difference between those two stories is that in one case, God is on top and we are underneath. And in the other case, we're on top.
0: Yeah, I may I might argue that God was simply, you know, for tens of thousands of years, God represented unexplained science and in the age of enlightenment, when you first saw, you know, the beginnings of scientific theory, you know, facts and theorems, and as more and more of what had been previously attributed to divine works was factually proven to be, you know, just a matter of physics or or whatever, that 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 was the the sort of the decrease, rather than a sort of a, a philosophical concept of of the human as greater than the god it's it's merely explaining the science and i don't i don't know if that you know i have i have concerns about you know the thought that stories are as impactful now as they were before the internet and before social media
1: oh they're I, more impactful even look at brexit look at president trump and the stories don't have anything with reality or science and it doesn't matter whether they're true or false The only thing that matters is whether people believe them. So it doesn't matter whether the election was, you know, fraudulent or it wasn't. Those who believe that the election was fraudulent, they would not be convinced by facts and science, because they have a story that tells them from the beginning the media was out there to get President Trump, and from the beginning, they were, you know, trying to undercut him in so many ways and misrepresent him. And from the beginning, this and that. And the end result is the results of the elections are fraudulent and are not to be trusted. And it doesn't matter how many recounts you do and the fact that it's Republicans who do the recounts in, in Georgia or elsewhere. It doesn't matter. Those who believe that story would deny any evidence and stick to their story.
0: Yeah. So, okay, you just completely destroyed my point. You're right. Yeah. If, if anything, it social media maybe amplifies um, the non-factual stories, but you're right. You're right. So, but I'm, the world I'm, is
1: I'm, rule. We live in a world, so first of all, we are a species that communicates with a fictive language. I already gave you the example that our language is not the real things but it's a representation of the real things. But it goes even further than that. Our language is called fictive language and that's what makes it different from the languages of other species because it is not The fact that we have language that designates words for a specific actual objective things like rivers and stones and trees and animals, etc. We're not unique in that way. There's other species who have language and words or designated uh, phonetic expressions uh, about these things. What makes us unique is the fact that our language is a fictive language, which has given birth to legal fictions and fictitious entities such as laws, ethics, morals, uh, nations, corporations, international organizations, human rights, Brexit, Trumpism, humanism and all those things. And in fact it's gotten to the point where the fictitious things that I just mentioned are in charge of our civilization, and will determine the future fate not, not, uh, uh, of the real things. Of the, so in other words, things that we can't touch, can't see and can't smell, that are entirely fictitious non-existent entities in the real world, are going to determine the destiny of things that are real and we can touch, see and smell, like rivers, like the oceans, like the climate, like the biosphere, like the animals, and even our own selves right? Because our civilization is a civilization of stories and those stories, real or not absolutely doesn't matter, are the most powerful entities and movers and shakers of our civilization. So let me just give you two or three of the most powerful ones. Religions. It doesn't matter what religion you believe in, whether you're an atheist or not there's billions of people On our planet, in fact, the vast majority of citizens on our planet would identify themselves with one religion or another, and many of them are being moved one way or another by those religions. So much so that the religion spells out what's right and wrong, how should we live, who should we marry, what should we eat, where we're coming from, where we are today, and where we're going, not only into the future, but even after we die. Everything is spelled out in those words. So that's a story, doesn't matter, in my opinion, it's totally a fabricated story, there's not a speck of evidence that any of those stories are true, and yet they're the most popular stories, and people live, die, and kill other people on a daily basis based on those stories. Let me give you another, probably even more powerful and more popular fabricated story. Money. Money doesn't exist, it's useless, it's an entire fabrication of the human mind. You can't eat it, you can't touch it, you can't drink it. It's totally useless. Today it doesn't even exist in the real world because it's not gold. It's not even paper anymore. Right now it's just digital numbers on a computer somewhere. That's all it is. And then when you move money from one bank or another, it's only the numbers that get emailed from one place to another. That's it. And you can see people like, even people like Osama bin Laden, who hates everything about America, everything about American way of life, even he was very happy to accept American dollars. Why? Because he believes in the story of money. <laughs> and so even people who totally disagree on pretty much everything fundamental in life with us and our way of life, even they, most of the time, accept the story of money. But again, money is not real and it's useless in itself. And the moment that people stop believing in, in money, it becomes worthless and you have hyperinflation, just like in the case of the king, money gets guillotinized g- and you have a run on the banks. Right? So that's our civilization. It's a civilization ruled by story. I feel like I have eight
0: thoughts that I want to say all, all, all like in parallel. We need, we need parallel speech processing. Thought one is that You must have loved the end of Game of Thrones. Um, I haven't seen it. (laughs) Thought two.
1: haven't seen uh, even one episode of that. I don't own a TV.
0: uh, Conscious choice or bad reception?
1: (laughs) Look, I live in Toronto and I have a gigabit connection at home. So, but I, when we got together with my wife 18 years ago, we decided not to buy a TV and we never bought one. And when we have guests in our place or back in the good days when actually we used to have an entertain guests which hasn't happened now for over a year you know people would be amazed that they don't see a TV in our home and uh yeah we never got one so okay no um and then I I now I'm
0: I'm all over the place what one might my- one might argue also in terms of money and, and the relative value of money and the, the, the story behind money and then your concept of, you know, talking about hyperinflation, that we are in a post for whatever reason. we're I'm sure there's a fancier economic term for it, but we are beyond at least certain powers in the world are, are beyond the concept of, of inflation by the influx of, of dollars. Or, or the additional printing of money, you know. I think I think we've gone through at least three or four quantitative easings, right? Trillions of dollars pumped into the economy by the Fed. You know, we we have what close to zero. We're still issuing you know zero or quarter percent bonds. We haven't seen that impact that one would traditionally associate with injecting large amounts of money. We we stopped. I think they sucked was it the M3, which was the the calculation of the American currency in circulation? They completely discontinued that measurement.
1: So the fact that it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean it can never happen. It's just the United States is in a very fortunate situation where it basically can export debt abroad because the American dollar up until now has been the default backup currency for everyone else. But. With Bitcoin and, and otherwise, that could be changing. And so the United States is kind of the exception rather than the rule. Even though your point still remains that there's been quantitative easing number of times in number of places. And so far, there hasn't been a big penalty for it. Part of that is because the economies have gone up after every time. It has happened, whether in Europe, whether in Canada or whether in the US. So as long as you have growth in the economy and in capitalism in general, things are okay. Uh, but the problem is, of course, that in a physically limited system like our planet Earth, you cannot have endless growth. We, You cannot have exponential growth forever.
0: Well, I think that brings me back to my original concept of, of what I perceive to be the, the upcoming fork in the road. So I, I see as culturally, and it has to be globally or, or not at all, right? I see a, the distinction where I, I really feel 15 to 20 years, 50% unemployment, beginning with, you know, the, the less skilled, you know, so truck drivers, uh, fast food workers, retail sales uh, delivery services, right? All those are phased out, and all those jobs are lost by AI and automation. And because of that, you're you're winding up. I don't know if there's any way of escaping that you're you're winding up with societies, especially Western societies, to begin with.
1: So you shouldn't identify the United States with Western society because while the robots may take the truck driving and the delivery jobs in. Denmark and even in Canada uh, and France, it doesn't mean that those people are going to remain unemployed in Denmark, Copenhagen, Oslo or Finland. That may be the case of the United States, but that may not be the case elsewhere. So the West is not the United States.
0: Okay, sorry, I, I probably should have said more developed nations versus lesser developed nations, nations that have an existing infrastructure that can support that automation as opposed to, you know, countries that might not have that infrastructure. That probably should have been my delineation. I'm, n- I'm not sure where, you know, my, I don't know where exactly that truck driver is supposed to go to get a job, right?
1: Maybe they're not supposed to, right? We, we need to change our thought on that fundamentally. and And the most, the first step towards that is to understand the fact that what you're describing is not a technological change is not a technological revolution, it's political change and it's political revolution because if you have, uh, you know, I think in the United States is like you have 5 million truck drivers and when you add all the delivery people, the taxi drivers and the service industries and all those that you're talking tens of millions of people, if you have those tens of millions of people suddenly unemployed you're going to have political instability and therefore you have the very high likelihood of political change.
0: Maybe. So this is, this is, that's, that's where I think we have the divergence in the road, right? So if we just, if we assume, which is a, which is a stretch that we're just going to hit 50 million people unemployed in, in the U.S., right? There's really only one of two roads that we can go down as a society, as a, as a culture, you know, the, the first road is sort of the pessimistic view, right? Where corporations own everything, they're the primary beneficiaries of the automation, and the 50% of people who are unemployed, there's a system that they get, you know, basically welfare, right? They get, they get a little uh, cubicle house that's made out of a shipping container. They get internet access, and then they get, you know, a, a ready-to-eat meal,
1: but those those oh, so so yes and no my friend yes and no because those details matter and those details you're just pulling out of a hat you're not you don't have any evidence for them and, and they could go very different from you know a cubicle house when you have 25 million armed truck drivers or together with all those other unemployed then, demanding here, change
0: yeah here's my point though if you give someone shelter a TV, right? Food and internet access. I think what we've realized and what I think a lot of people have realized is that the level it takes to keep the masses comfortable enough to where they're not willing to risk their lives because it takes something, right? For someone to pick up that rifle sure. and actually and actually go, right? Sure. All you need for pacification is... You know a few basic things that, in the long scheme of things, especially if AI and automation are are as advanced as as they would be, that are relatively inexpensive to you know, and so it's just a it's just a complete, you know the the ten percent get even super rich, but we have a bottom fifty percent that are that are absolutely hundred percent dependent on the government and through extension the corporations they they are 100% dependent on the government for just day to day because there's nothing there's no you have to have a phd to get a job that you actually work at and go to every day right and so that's the negative view i think that's the negative view okay, it's because the negative, reality yeah well i mean i think it's reality right i think no, i think, it's
1: not it's absolutely not reality again you cannot extrapolate from your where you're located
0: i am i am you know i was raised in toronto the greatest city on earth um, but I am currently in Southern California. Where? I'm just outside. I'm sort of between Orange County and LA.
1: Okay. So how long you've been there? Long time. Okay. So that's your reality now. But but you shouldn't confuse that with the reality of the world. And even your reality can change, right? So So the Canadian reality here has been that, for example, the government has been given $2,000 a month to something like uh, I forget if it's 10 or 17% of its population. Maybe it was 10% of its population, but 20% of its workforce, okay? $2,000 a month, it's already extended it twice for the past year. So we're already there. What, what you're describing as impossible, we're already there. And Canada is not an exception. This has happened in many, many other countries.
0: Sure. And you're talking about UBI, right? Universal Basic Income.
1: Well, we call it CRB in Canada, or it used to be called CERB. It's basically COVID rescue, uh, whatever it is. I don't know the <laughs> freaking but, abbreviation. But those,
0: those amounts, and even in the UBI discussions that we have down here, those those are always currently perceived as supplemental income, right? It's it's additional into whatever wages or whatever other income sources that person has. It's meant as a supplement, not an entire replacement for.
1: Why not? Well, yeah. Um, In Canada, it's a replacement. Look, I'm a keynote speaker. That's so. Ninety-five percent of my income, I make with keynote speaking. That's how I pay for my podcast. That's how I pay for my rent. That's how I pay for the lights on. That's how I put food on my table. That's how I pay for my server and everything that I do, for my microphone, everything. 5% I get from my income, from donations, from my generous uh, supporters. When COVID hit, I was lucky I had my last uh, keynote speaking client in Panama, in Panama City and I did my last speaking gig on February the 4th in Panama 2020 and half the people who were supposed to come to that conference that I was speaking at couldn't make it because basically the Chinese and the Australians were already under lockdown. So that was my last paid speaking gig right? After that my 95 percent of my income disappeared literally overnight. I had all kinds of bookings for other events and you know I'm, I've been fortunate enough I, I've made I make good money on those. All of those disappeared literally overnight. and I am no exception. I am the same happened with you know airlines, travel, service industry, you know, brick and mortar businesses on main streets which are having to pay very high rent costs and stuff like that for major commercial streets, etc. etc. So how, how is it that it doesn't make sense that the government would try to s- provide full income replacement to me rather than a supplementation? Which by the way they kind of are doing because in Canada the rules say this you can make anything under a thousand dollars and then you'll be fully edged eligible to receive CRB, uh, which is what you would call UBI. And if you make less than a thousand dollars, you're eligible. If you make more than a thousand dollars, I think it's either becoming protracted or it disappears. right? And've I've actually had a couple of clients uh, here for virtual keynotes. Now, unfortunately, the reality of virtual keynotes is that they don't pay as much as what people used to pay when you would go and deliver physical in-person speech. (laughs) So now I'm getting a a pay cut per speech in the range of uh, ninety, 95% less that I charged in those couple of occasions. But the point is, if... the Canadian government realized that, that, you know, people not being able to pay their mortgages, not being able to pay their rents, not being able to put food on the table. And we're talking here, let's say, 20% of the working population or maybe 10% of the general population, but then you have the two young who are under 20 and don't work and the older, over 65, who are retired, right? So we're talking 20% of the workforce suddenly lost its job. Now, the Great Depression was triggered by an unemployment of about 25%. They say maybe 28%, somewhere somewhere between 25 and 30%, perhaps, right? And we already in Canada have something like a 5%, what is called natural inflation. When you add the COVID premium to that, we were looking at something like 25% unemployment, right? So this is basically the Great Depression level of unemployment, that happens overnight because overnight all my clients canceled my future gigs and I lost all my future income. And again, I'm not in a unique situation and I'm not complaining, not even one bit. I'm just sharing a, a living experience. And the Canadian government had the wisdom to do something about it right now. And, and, and you know what? They implemented it in a shockingly quick speed so in one month, they released the program and uh, the program started, I think in March or April of 2020. So the United States, Joe Biden just now signed like last week $1.7 trillion or something like that of the COVID-8 package. We had that in Canada a year ago. And every month recurring. Every month right. recurring $2,000 a month. and. It's been extended two times now. That has been happening in many, many countries in Western democracies in Denmark, in Germany, in France, in Scandinavia, in Finland, in many others.
0: but I think I think there's a huge difference in what everyone perceives as a temporary uh, situation. There's a great deal of generosity applied when when people think that this is something we're just going through, right? Or we've been hit by the plague, et cetera. I think it's a, quite a different uh, discussion when you're just saying, I'm, I'm intentionally going to, your taxes are going to go to, you know, the 50% of the population that does not have a job and does not need to go get a job.
1: Well, that was the new deal. That's, that's what FDR did, and that's why after World War II you had 90% tax rate in the United States of America, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 90% tax rates, and that sustained itself even though it was progressively chipped away from uh, until Reagan's era, and, and then Reagan basically killed it. But the point is that we have a precedent, at the very least, that things used to be that way. Therefore, it's absolutely not impossible that things can be again that way. Now, the the thing is though, to get there, unfortunately, you have to go through some kind of great calamity uh, or or great disaster, natural or otherwise, uh, which could mobilize people and put on the same page. And so, in some countries like Canada, COVID may have been sufficient enough to induce that kind of thinking. In the United States, it hasn't, but it doesn't mean that it, it, no calamity of ever kind would ever be able to bring about that kind of thinking again.
0: Right, but that's—I think—that's my point. If you're able to pacify half of the populace by providing basic goods or basic services, then theoretically, there is no—there's no man-made calamity at that point. There's no revolution. There's no people marching in the streets.
1: So what's wrong with that? If people are happy, well fed and healthy, what what's the problem with that? Is it better to have unstable political society, violence on the street, you know, kings being guillotinized on the main square?
0: <laughs> right. So you're but so you've gone down the other path of mine, which is where it's sort of like a Star Trek. Uh, utopia, right, where if you want to work, you can work, if you don't want to work, you're still going to have an excellent quality of life, right? Robots All I'm do everything. saying every- is
1: that each future scenarios are equally possible and what would make them less or more probable is our actions. And our actions are derived from our stories. And if we change our stories, if we bring our stories in sync we can bring about either of those actions or either of those outcomes, rather. And I myself would prefer the Star Trek scenario rather than the one you're describing.
0: My, my, the scenario, on, I, I think the, other, the left side is based on the recognition of human nature, right? And in, in the, in the, hu- the recognition of human nature when things get tough. And I, I just, I have a hard time. And again, America is a bit of anomaly, right? We're incredibly capitalistic. Money runs this this country to, to a greater extent. And I just, I have, like when I'm talking about those people in, in the shipping containers, like those are not good conditions, right? Nobody, nobody wants to be in those situations. It's just a, a, a greater shift in the, you know, wealth equality gap. Um, and a, and a greater shift between the haves and the have-nots, but in this case, the have-nots have just the bare minimum threshold to where they're not willing to go pick up a rifle.
1: So I I missed the, the, your claims of human nature here. Where where is human nature come, come to be here, and wo, and what is it exactly? Well, I think I think
0: I find it hard when I look at history, and I'm I'm no historian by any stretch of the imagination. But I I have a hard time seeing situations where People get better without huge amounts of bloodshed where a de- what, what most moralistic people would consider a downward trend. So let's you know again, let's take the 80s and and you know the the, the standpoint of greed is now an accepted moral right I don't I, I don't know of a way that that shifts. I don't know I can't see
1: you shift the story and that changes. And you can already see it happening in America in the younger generation, in the so-called millennials. And you can see that for them, money is not a sufficient motivator.
0: Yeah, because they're living at home. The minute they have to go live on their own, money's going to be... Sure, incredibly... philosophy
1: is not for the poor.
0: But oh. once
1: you've had the taste of it, you can never forget it. And, and once you have that story, you always carry it with you. And once money has not been sufficient for you, and yes, as you said, they live at home and they have a very comfortable way of life. And we know it's true also for happiness. You need to have the basics to be happy. But once you get 70,000 or thereabouts, uh, the marginal increase of financial progress or earnings gives you diminishing rates of return in terms of happiness
0: let's i I've, I've heard that stat as well and i i i understand it conceptually but the reality is and i'm i'm lucky enough now in my life that i'm comfortable i i make a good living and etc. i'm a, i'm very comfortable but i have been extremely poor in my life i've gone through periods where I had no food to eat i literally went hungry for days on end so i think i have a little bit of a of you know, an understanding of sort of both situations. But I would push back in that the $70,000 may not have a direct impact on your happiness, but what additional money does is it negates worries, right? It protects you. So you can say that I'm not being happy about something, but on the other hand, I'm not worried about these 80 dozen things that someone making a million dollars a year doesn't have to worry about. I don't have to worry about healthcare. I don't have to worry about rent or the mortgage. I don't have to worry about where am I going to send my kids to school. It's not necessarily making someone happier from a...
1: You're just replacing one kind of worry with another kind of worry. But are you? You know, after a certain level, you know, maybe... (laughs) all the the statistical analysis of of the connection between money and happiness fall apart at an increasing pace after a certain amount of money. And it may not be 70,000 anymore, it may be 83,000 in today's money. But the point is, after a certain point of saturation, whether you're talking about the chemical reaction, whether you're talking about the physical phenomenon, or whether you're talking about the financial phenomenon connected to happiness, you get a point of saturation beyond which you, you have marginal returns to scale. And that, that's a fact that can be observed in chemistry, in physics, and also in finance and in happiness. And it's been discussed, by the way, for thousands of years, from Socrates to Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Cicero and beyond, Diogenes of Sinope, etc and what is to be worried and what you worried about is a story in your head. And as Epictetus says, we suffer not from the events in our life but from the stories that we attach to them. So you can have the same event happen to two different people and one would suffer and another would be happy. Which would tell you that it's not the event that made whatever impact positive or negative it had on that particular person but it's the story within which they perceived, judged and then evaluated this particular event in positive or negative terms that had the impact on, on them and therefore if you can change the story within which you evaluate the events, you can change the event and you can change its impact on you and that's how you can get in charge. And that was most extremely demonstrated by Viktor Frankl, who was in the living hell of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And I think he, he survived three, maybe even four of the more, most gruesome camps that the Nazis had for, uh, for Jews and, and others, Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and stuff like that. Uh, so, Auschwitz book him out, and uh, Lublin. I don't know, there's like three or four of the worst ones, and he's, he survived all four of them, or at least three. And, and he talked about the importance of meaning, and how meaning can be your guiding light. Uh, and, and that's a continuation of Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, give a man a sufficiently strong why, and he would endure any how. Uh, and the how... Uh, Is just the moment, just how we do things. But the why, the why is why we do things. And it's so much more important, why we survive. And this is where our freedom lies. Uh, Viktor Frankl says that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And it is within that space that we can forge our decisions. And this is where our freedom lies.
0: Yeah, I, I have a lot of issues with that. I think to, to, to Franco's point, you know, I think there's a bit of survivorship bias there, literally, unfortunately. Um, you know, if, if he had been put in the right line instead of the left line, he wouldn't be around, right? Uh, there's but the, that would the, not
1: have made a difference about whether he was worried or not. You see, that that's the point I'm trying to get across here. So, yes, he may not have survived, and he describes hundreds of cases like that in his book, That's why he never picked or chose anything. And that's why he basically, uh, and, and that's a very Buddhist, by the way, attitude of not picking and choosing anything. But his attitude towards the left or the right line would have remained constant. And whatever the outcome, death or life would have been, it would not have diminished his outlook, his being, and his story and his perception. And, and maybe even you can go as far as to claim his happiness. Uh, and there's many examples of that, uh, if you look at Epicurus for example, he is famous I think for dying from something like pancreatic cancer or kidney cancer or bowel cancer or something like that, and he supposedly was dying in his bathtub chatting with his um, students while in terrible pain and supposedly at least visibly, judging by all the visible symptoms, very happy, and he, and he even said he was very happy. So, the fact that you die doesn't mean that, that you have to worry about it. In fact, uh, once you get over that fear of death situation, and, and accept that death is inevitable, and accept that the, the glass is already broken, as the Zen masters would say, the day that the glass broke breaks actually it's not going to be a tragedy for you.
0: Okay, but there's a reason why it's not Epicurus. E- e- Epicetus, e- uh, Epictetus, Epictetus himself, by Epictetus. the way.
1: Epicetus. So there's Epicurus, who is the father of the Epicureans, but there's Epictetus, and Epictetus basically means acquired. We don't even know the guy's name. You know why? Because he was a slave. He was a slave who was owned by, you know, the Roman Empire was, was a slave-owning empire and was built on, this, on slave labor and was very brutal towards its slaves. And even under Roman, by all Roman measurements, Epictetus' owner was a brutal bastard. And one day he beat him so bad that he snapped his leg. Uh, and so he, Epictetus had a limp for the rest of his life. So he was a slave, and yet after a certain point he got freed, uh, so he gained his freedom, and he became a teacher of emperors in Rome. Uh, And he didn't, uh, supposedly even when the guy broke his leg, he said something like, I told you it's going to snap, and that was about it, that's what all he said. So the, the point is, and, and he's the man who said that it is not the events in our life that make us suffer, but the stories that we attach to them. And the main understanding here is that in stoic philosophy, the only thing that we can control really is our rational thoughts, our minds, everything else. So, so they said, you can take my body, you can kill me, you can torture me, I cannot stop you doing that but you cannot change my inner happiness, you cannot change my rational thoughts, and you cannot change who I am. And so, they have embraced the fact that there's things that are under their control, and there's things that are outside of their control, and they worry only about the things that are under their control, and the only thing that's under their control is their rational thoughts. Everything else, your health, your wealth, Uh, your property, your children, your wife, uh, your car, your bank account, those are not things in your account uh, under your control. Now, you may have a story that tells you, look, I have a million dollars and therefore I'm more likely to less worry than someone who doesn't have a million dollars. But you know what? That's also a factually false statement because I'll give you two reasons. First of all, Go to the third world countries and travel in Africa and in all kinds of places, and you would see people who live in the middle of the savanna or in the freaking desert and who have one camel and nothing else in the rest of the world, and they smile. And they're very happy. And they're yes. very extremely happy. And, they don't ha- and you give them some water and some food, and, and they have no worries in the world. And then you have people in the United States who are worth millions on paper, one way or another, who are in extremely stressed and, and die from heart attacks and have strokes and all kinds of issues and high cholesterol, etc, cetera, etc, cetera. right, so that's one. And number two is, it's also the perception, you think you're safe, but are you really safe? Because again, you can't control whether the bank is not going to screw you up out of your money, you can't control whether the government's not going to print up so much money that your million dollars is going to be useless tomorrow, uh, It's going to be devalued. You can't control the fact that, uh, you know, there may be a total collapse of the whole system, whether economic or political or both. There's so many things that are way beyond your control, like the 2008, you know, uh, economic uh, crash, which basically devastated people's 401ks and and retirement savings in the United States, you know, on, on a wholesale basis. Right, so, so you may think you're safe, but the reality is that that's not necessarily true at all. That's just a story. And someone who has no care in the world, who has no such money, turns out to be more safe. You know, Seneca was one of the richest Romans, and yet he was describing how a slave owners, a slave owner who owns thousands of slaves may end up being owned by their own possessions in the end of the day because they become slaves to their own possessions. And in, in in some ways, they can end up worse off than their slaves. And that would certainly be true in the case of Epictetus.
0: Yeah, part of me feels that a lot of this is sort of a continuation of, of you know, the Catholic Church and, and Protestants. It, just that, you know, again, that espousing the thought that being poor is a virtue right being not having it's you know the eye of the needle camel metaphor right and i think i think in retrospect and i think many people agree that that was just really a way for uh the people who did have money to placate those people who don't have money and i think i i think you know uh the the memes like you know the 70,000 dollars is all you need for happiness i didn't i, I, say I that. think those
1: I didn't no, say that's I, all. I'm, you I'm need. sorry.
0: You're right. I'm I'm paraphrasing the, the seventy after anything after seventy thousand gives you a diminishing returns in in terms of happiness. Sorry, um, I, they almost feel like modern day uh, equivalencies of that, and I think I think they're important because I think there's a realization that a lot of people are going to have no tangible assets in the near future they're not they're not going to have anything they own because they don't have any means of of creating them. And I think I struggle. I mean, I'm I'm I, you know, if there's one word that's come through this conversation over and over and over again, it's the thought of the story, right? It's it's the creation or you know, of of an ideal. But at the end of the day, you know, you talked about the two people who who have completely different responses to a story. If they don't have bread, they have an equal response to not having any food. Right? They're both hungry.
1: How many situations in history when you have two brothers who get the same inheritance and each gets half and one considers themselves poor and another considers themselves rich and one gets destitute and loses everything and the other progresses. Sure. And, And that stems from a perspective and the perspective is derived from a story. And by the way, I have to apologize because the re- I'm writing a book on story at the moment. And that's why we ended up sort of no, in this it's great. direction. But it's also because I'm kind of working out myself through this with your help now here in a, in a kind of a living conversation, which is a unique living thing. And it's a very useful tool. So the book that I'm currently writing is called Rewriting the Human Story, How Our Story Determines Our Future. And you see, AI is a story. Capitalism is a story. The technological singularity is a story. The industrial revolution is a story. The 20th century was basically a clash of three stories, fascism, communism, and capitalism. And, you know, fascism died away first in the 40s, then communism stuck around until the 90s, maybe 89, Bulgaria, it was like early 90s. Uh, Capitalism progressed further on and, and triumphed for the time being, but I think the first couple of decades of the 20th century are providing sufficiently enough evidence to claim that capitalism is itself falling apart as a story now. And we can see the the effects of that everywhere, politically, ideologically, philosophically, socially, religiously, theologically, even environmentally and economically. And so what we need is, we need a new story. We need a new story that what guide us towards a better future because stories tell us not only who we are and where we're coming from, but also where we're going. And to be able to put a team that row, that is rowing on a boat, to make them all row in synchrony and work together towards the accomplishment of a common goal, first, before you even give them the boat, you have to give them a story as per why they need to get in that boat and why they all need to, to row together as a unit and if you don't have that story even if you have the best boat in the world and the best trainers one person is going to row backward and one is going to go forward and one sideways but if you have a crappy boat and you have a team that's united by the best story possible they would accomplish a lot more and history is full of cases proving that
0: unless you don't have a boat unless you need someone to buy that boat for you.
1: So even when you don't have a boat, you can still swim, goddammit. And uh, you know, a bunch of swimmers would get further, further in the distance than a bunch of people who are in a perfect boat rolling in uh, mutually destructive directions or undermining each other simply because they, they don't do it in unison and they don't do it as a team. And, you know, that's one lesson that, that, that you learn in the army is that a good team may suffer in terms of food, may suffer in terms of equipment, may suffer in terms of uh, supply, may, may suffer even in terms of, you know, ammunition even. But if they have the motivation, and again, that motivation comes from a story, and if they work well as a team, they would defeat in the long run any better supplied, better equipped army uh, which is incongruent or disunited. Uh, And again, history is full of examples like that and in the American context I'll just give you Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, And in all those cases the most powerful military in the world was ultimately defeated. Uh, And most recently you can see President Trump basically abandoned the Afghanistani government uh, to the Taliban, and uh, you know the longest-lasting war in the history of the United States—20 years in Afghanistan—and in the end, after trillions of dollars and thousands of American lives lost, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, best equipment, best airplanes, B-1 bombers, B-2 bombers, you name it, massive supercomputers, artificial intelligence, statistical analysis, and in the end, a bunch of cave-dwelling. Uh, AK-47 and and you know RPG armed light infantry defeated the United States. Why? Because their story tells them I can die right now here today, and I'm okay with it. And that may be idiotic in in so many ways as it is, and may be destructive, personally, but collectively for their story and their team it's a winning strategy, because that was the strategy of the Vietnamese in Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh, basically, and that was the strategy of Stalin, by the way, against the the Germans in Stalingrad and in Leningrad and in, and you know, they got like, I think, 20, 30 kilometers off away from Moscow. All those cases, the Russians lost enormous numbers of people, enormous numbers of people. And there's one very famous example where... Stalin sent the biggest cavalry attack that the Russians could master, basically the whole Siberian cavalry unit of the Russians against the German tanks, and the Germans basically slaughtered them, everyone to the last man and horse, utter waste of life. And so, uh, militarily, it was utterly idiotic for him to do. Psychologically, however, it was an utter hit on the German psyche because they saw that the Russians are not going to give up and that they're willing to pay any price to stop the Germans, including risk tens of thousands, not risk, spend tens of thousands of people's lives on a stupid horse attack against tanks and so psychologically that was a huge uh I- impact on them and, and you can see that everywhere and that comes from that story uh, and you know the russians had the story that the motherland and yes yeah. the motherland so for rodino for stalin for for the motherland and for stalin they you know the the british had for king and country the russians had for stalin and for country basically <laughs> yeah
0: I think, and I, I, maybe it's a matter of intellect, but there's just an etherealness to the story concept that I think runs into the practicality of the, of the tangible. And I always feel like in, in quote unquote, the real world, the, the tangible will always supersede the ethereal or the conceptual
1: well, I'm making the exactly opposite claim. My I know you I know that, you
0: are. I'm sorry. Yeah. I am sorry about that.
1: No, that's okay. That that's why it's so interesting and it's fun, because I'm claiming that the ethereal, the non-tangible, the thing that you can't touch, smell, and see is in our civilization in charge of the things that you can touch, smell and see, and that are tangible. So much so that the future of our civilization depends on it. Uh, So much so that the climate depends on it. So much so that our own human survival depends on it.
0: Yeah, I I struggle with that.
1: Think about it. Money is not tangible, as I said. The international organizations and bodies that are in charge of whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the climate change, they're all intangible. They're all fictive organizations that, that are, you know, figments of the human imagination. Nations and corporations themselves are not natural physical things. They're right. legal They're fictions. Uh, corporations, sure. you know, some judge writes, you know, some piece of paper signs it and says, okay, that corporation exists now and it has human rights like a person and it can own property. Well, here's a transhuman for you now. That corporation can live for thousands of years, we already have corporations who have lived hundreds of years, and they're literally immortal. Um, and, and they can be billionaires and trillionaires, uh, and they can make decisions that outlast generations, and they can cause death and suffering of humans on a huge scale. And artificial intelligence will be no different, especially if you're talking about software if they don't necessarily have to be embodied, maybe they have to be embodied as robots, maybe they don't, maybe they can just be software. And in that case, AI is going to be basically a story, a bunch of zeros and ones put together in a certain uh, sequence, uh, if that's the case. So you can't touch, smell and see it, but yet it can have devastating effects on humanity, potentially, or powerful effects either case even if they're positive. Right, it's either
0: u- it, but I think it's I think it's only going to be one of those two extremes. It's either going to be utopia or dystopia. I don't I don't know that there's a middle ground.
1: I don't think the world is black and white. I think it will be both utopia and dystopia, just like the world is today. The future is already here, it's just unequally distributed, as William Gibson said. The same with the future of utopias and dystopias, there will be utopia, there will be dystopia in one realm, in another realm, in one uh, industry or another industry, in one geographical location and in another. There will be diversity, I think, at least in the medium, short to medium run, now in the long run we don't know. But in the short to medium run I think there will be a diversity, just like there is a diversity today in our attitudes towards UBI, as you are giving examples. America may take longer to get there, others are already there, like Canada, like many others. But don't underestimate the power of America to change. You know, we Canadians are not superior to Americans in any way. Uh, We are not smarter, we're not better. We just have a system which kind of harnesses... Can I defend Canada here for a minute? Sorry?
0: I want to defend Canada here. You're definitely superior in terms of latitude. You're definitely superior in hockey. Uh, you're,
1: you're <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree with you on that. In basketball, I'm from Toronto, so I'm okay, a Raptors right? fan.
0: Yeah, John Naismith, right? Uh, basketball. Uh, and you're definitely politer than we are. So, so yeah, let's not pretend that
1: Okay, but all of that notwithstanding, those are maybe the result of a system which allows us to harness certain things or incentivize us or it has educated us or one way or another produces these outcomes better than yours.
0: I would explain that through the fact that in its history, Canada, I mean, aside from the depression, which I think everybody suffered through, Canada hasn't ever had sort of a, uh, fight for survival existence or or a maybe that's not the right word but Canada's
1: cases of extre- invaded twice by the united states each of those occasions was the dream of the american president to make the united states of america from sea to sea to sea which is to say east west and north
0: i'll have to research that i think we invaded you just because we were pissed you burned our white house down but it, no, and it may uh, have been a greater extension of the our animosity towards the British and, and part of the fur trading uh, going on. Or we just wanted to refund from Hudson's Bay and you guys wouldn't do it.
1: But I, around the Monroe Doctrine and, and read about the, the presidents surrounding the wars, both of 1812 but even before that, it's been the dream of American presidents to have, as I said, sea to sea, east to west and north. Uh, and Canada was in the way, and that's why the United States in 1812 sent a sub- substantial army trying to take over Toronto here, and which was met by a kind of a volunteer regiment. And the volunteer sort of uh, uh, <laughs> collection... Please don't ha- say
0: well-armed militia. Please do not say well-armed militia.
1: Well, I, I, it was basically volunteers on Yonge Street... that that gathered and and met the Americans in 1812, like, I don't know, 20 kilometers away from Toronto and and defeated the American army, Uh, and hence Canada is existing today. Otherwise, if we had lost that battle and that war, uh, we wouldn't exist. It would be the United States here today, Toronto would be American.
0: (laughs) Good Lord, the worst possible outcome. All right. Well, look, we've we've gone super, super long. Um, it's and we've gone the number of different topics that we've covered today, I think, is is uh, pretty formidable. You know, is is there a, you know, I, I I'm I know what the answer is going to be. But is there a sort of final thought that you want to leave the listeners with about the future of, of technology and its interaction with humankind?
1: So the the parting thought is this. It's not about technology. It's about us. And the reason for that is that technology is a magnifying mirror. It merely reflects our essence, but it doesn't really have an essence of its own. So if you put garbage in, you're only going to get garbage out, but it's only going to be exponential. And the reason why technology is a magnifying mirror is because it merely reflects the engineers, the designers, the the entrepreneurs, the scientists and the creators and the users of it but it is also a mirror of our good and our evil, of our dreams and hopes and our fears, of our best and of our worst. But again, it doesn't really have an essence of its own because it merely reflects our own essence, but the thing is it has a magnifying effect, that's why it's a magnifying mirror. So it has this amplification effect and it almost always has unforeseen consequences. But the point is that it's good to spend some time on the mirror and some effort, but it's probably better to spend some time on ourselves to consider, because right now our process is something like this. We look at the mirror of technology and we say, I don't like the mirror. I I don't like the image. And therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fix the mirror. I'm going to polish the mirror. I'm going to make a better mirror. All I'm saying is if you don't like the image that you see in the mirror, maybe we should spend some time and effort on fixing our own selves, on improving our own selves because we are actually ultimately the ones who are emitting the mirror and technology. So instead of putting all of our effort into polishing the mirror, we should put perhaps more effort into polishing and fixing ourselves. And that is not a technological process, that's a process which is philosophical and ethical in its essence, that is a process of self-improvement and that is a process which will determine the future one way or another, because technology is non-deterministic just like when I told you the example of the communist Eastern Bloc and Western Europe and fascist uh, uh, Germany. Same technology, different outcomes. Why? Because technology is non-deterministic. It is how you apply it that matters, and how you apply it is derived by the stories that dominate that time. So if you have a dominant story of dictatorship of the proletariat like we did, even though it was much of bullshit, you know, you end up with a disaster like we had in the Eastern Bloc. If you have the the story of fascism, you end up with Nazi Germany. If you have a story of Western democracy and suffrage for everyone over 18 and things like that, with all the different flavors ranging from, you know, capitalism, neoliberalism, American style, British style, Canadian style, Scandinavian style, French style, etc. Then you have all those options, and all those options don't depend on the technology, they depend on the ideology, they depend on the philosophy, they depend on our values, they depend on our stories ultimately, they depend on us. And if we want to change the future therefore, we can't change the evidence, we can't change the science, we can change the stories which allow us or motivate us or incentivize us to use one kind of science and one kind of tools and one kind of methods to pursue these kinds of outcomes that we pursue those are derived from stories, so if you want to change our future, we have to change the story Because only by changing our same old story can we look at the same old evidence and come up with a different plan of action than the one that we had before. We can't change the evidence, we can't change the science, we can change the story and therefore how we use and apply that or those. And if you want to learn more, uh, I would say three things. First, uh, read Viktor Frankl's classic. It's a very short book called Men's Search for Meaning. It's utterly phenomenal. I, uh, I think everyone—it's utterly phenomenal—and I think everyone should read that. Men's search for meaning. Read Ryan Holiday's *The Lives of Stoic Philosophers*. I think it's called *The Lives of the Stoics*. And uh, if you want to learn more about my own work, uh, you can go to singularity.info or singularity.fm. Uh, nice. We appreciate that. Um, Ryan Holiday's book is called Lives of the Stoics. Got it.
0: So we do sort of wrap things up here usually. Um, aside from maybe those books, uh, is there anything sort of moving through current culture in terms of, you know, books or or uh, you don't watch TV movies or, or music that you're listening to that you would want to recommend to our audience?
1: I listen to a bunch of podcasts. I listen to... Cory Doctorow. I listened to Seth Godin. I love both of them. I think Ryan Holiday is a phenomenal author. I've read, I think, most, if not all of his books. You uh, Yuval know, Harari is another one that I've read in all of his for, books. For fun.
0: What do you do when you want to get away? What do you, what do you turn
1: to? I turn to science fiction. Okay, Verner, fi- the the Werner I've
0: always pronounced it Werner Vinge, but I guess that's the the wrong Werner uh, Vinge is
1: his pronunciation I think if I remember. Uh but and uh, I've read him.
0: I lo- I I love his works. Uh so for those of you out there the 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 Real Time series and uh the Zone of Thought series, which I think had to do with spiders. But great great books, great author.
1: Yeah, I would also add uh you know, Carrie Carl Schroeder, phenomenal sci-fi author, Charlie Strauss, who wrote Accelerando, which was basically the book that, together with Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity Is Near, pushed me to study the technological singularity and artificial intelligence. You know, the, the Singularity Is Near is the non-fiction version of Accelerando, which is the science fiction version. So Charlie Strauss, Carl Schroeder, Cory Doctorow, yeah, there's, there's, we have... David Brin, we have uh, so many phenomenal sci-fi authors uh, that I could recommend. Kim Stanley Robinson. Oh, okay. All
0: right. Uh, as another one. I think that'll get everyone through the end of the epidemic or the pandemic. It should carry us through. I, I, I do just really want to say, I think it was a great conversation. Uh, I think I'm I'm struggling still with a bit of it, but that's Okay. Um, and um, hopefully the listeners out there learned something or or gained a new perspective on on how we uh, look at things so thank you very much Nick I really appreciate your time
1: my pleasure entirely and don't think that I didn't struggle and don't depreciate that because there's no progress without struggle when we go to the gym we struggle every accomplishment is a result of struggle and, and only if you struggle with ideas would you ever be able to digest them learn from them, improve them and incorporate them one way or another, even if you simply deny them in the end of the day. So there's nothing wrong with the struggle. Actually we should embrace the struggle because that's how we survive, that's how we learn, that's how we get better, that's how we make progress.
0: And there you have it. Good words to end on. Thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate it. My pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening, catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at at tiltatwindmills.com.